Welcome to the Collective Evolution Show. The CE Show is a podcast that will feature anything from discussions to reports on a variety of topics, all framed within the context of transformation that is occurring within us individually and collectively as a society. You could probably relate to the fact that our current world seems to be falling apart and that things are becoming quite chaotic, and making sense of what's going on has become really tough. Old ways of viewing the world don't seem to be working anymore, so people are looking for new conversations. Many are noticing that much of traditional or mainstream media, or even academia, seem to be failing at understanding and exploring the cultural transitions and changes that are happening in people and society. The reality is that we've arrived at a time where we have to start talking about these emerging ideas that come from an entirely different narrative about what it means to be a human and what we're capable of. On this podcast, we'll talk about anything from current events to personal transformation, consciousness, future technology, and more. We'll explore real things that are happening in our world that are inspiring, but that may not be explored too much in pop culture or media. Of course, these topics can all be explored on our website as well at collective-evolution.com, where you'll find articles, essays, and videos. You can also join our membership platform called CTV, where we have a ton of exclusive video content, including original shows, discussions, and courses to help you make sense of the world and transform how you show up in life. You can visit CTV.one to check out our member area. Welcome to another episode of the C Show here. Got a fascinating uh, discussion that's going to happen here with Bruce Fenton. He's uh, an author, a multidisciplinary uh, scientific researcher, and also an explorer. Uh, and he's put together some incredibly interesting work um, in several books and, and a couple papers that he's written in uh, really exploring the idea of uh, a three very distinct anomalies that have happened in a uh, very, very distant past here on Earth, uh, somewhere around 780,000 years ago. And these three specific anomalies uh, point to uh, a very interesting extraterrestrial story that may involve the creation of human beings, you and I today, uh, through genetic manipulation by extraterrestrials. And now, so what's going to happen here as we go through this particular episode is... There's this first starts with a bit of a story, um, and the story is something that uh, Bruce had heard through another person, and then he decided to say what scientific evidence exists that could potentially support this story, which is an ancient Aboriginal story. Um, what evidence exists? So I just want to pre uh, you know set a bit of a precursor here. Is initially what we're going to be talking a lot is about a, a bit of a story, and you might say, hey, this is a little bit unbelievable. This seems like a little bit out there. But that was not his approach to this. His approach to this was, what does the science actually tell us? And he finds three incredibly interesting uh, anomalies that are very scientific in nature that may lend very, very deeply to this story. Fascinating interview. And just as a small note, there's going to be, we're going to be referring to two books he's written, one called Into Africa, Forgotten Exodus of the Into Africa Theory of Human Evolution, and another one called Exogenesis, Hybrid Humans and a Scientific History of Extraterrestrial Manipulation. These two books that he's written really start to tell uh, the story very, very deeply as to what we're going to be discussing here in this interview. All right, Bruce, welcome to the show. It's good to have you on here. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Yep. Let's kind of start this off with, a, you know, when we think about the topic of who we are as humans and like maybe even where we came from, right? These are, you know, not big questions at all, but <laughs> um, 
but when we when we think about those things, we often have two main stories that um, people generally believe or don't believe. There are probably little things in between that smaller groups of people believe, but but we have kind of two main stories. We were either placed here by some sort of God or powerful force in the universe that sort of fits into a religious context. Um, and then we have the story that says we evolved out of the Big Bang over, you know, millions and millions and millions and millions of years um, through different types of, of hominids, you know, ultimately moving into what we see today, which is the modern human. And these are kind of the two prevalent stories. However, there's a lot of people that are bringing forth a different story based on evidence. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about today. And, and I was curious to get, because I know you've done a lot of work uh, in this space and you have a lot of interesting evidence to share. Given the context of what we just laid out um, you know, there, how would you sort of take this story forward from there? What have you found with regards to these two stories? Yeah, I mean, it's funny enough, I did start off um, just touching on that at the beginning of the latest book because you know i also see is that we're approaching sort of a middle way you know that we have that the religious framework that you know there's this mystical story to our creation you know that with god being involved you know sort of manifesting our world manifesting us shaping us or conversely a very a very sort of materialistic view isn't it? you know with um it's just the universe has got these mechanical processes that kind of, you know, sort of geological processes, chemical processes that eventually lead to life. And then, you know, through all this random chance, you know, we are eventually are shaped, you know, and I, I do see those as kind of extremes where they're not really supported by evidence. I mean, you can say with the religious view that perhaps you don't need any because you're dealing with kind of magical thinking, right? So, obviously God could do anything. Okay. So we, so you don't really need evidence for that. Uh, and then on the other side of, of course, you've got the very mechanic view where the evidence is partially there, but there are these, these holes in the story, which are at the moment just seen as, you know, well, we'll fill them in later um, rather than saying, Hey, maybe we've got something wrong here and we need to reassess. So I'm, I'm in the middle saying, well, look, you know, there's room for, there's room for God in this because the universe comes from somewhere. Nobody knows exactly how it's formed. Um, it's, I believe it's intelligent. It's implicitly got intelligence in it. So I'm quite happy with the idea that there is a background greater intelligence in this. But I also see that these processes are running, you know, these kind of mechanistic processes are running. I mean, we do see some elements of that, certainly in geology, chemistry, you know, these processes on planets, you know, all that's happening. But with, with life, I think that we do have some mixture of the two, that there's a first animation of matter that occurs. Now, I don't know exactly how that happened, but I suspect that in some sense, consciousness is flowing in matter and that there's already some degree of consciousness in all things, right? So, so there is a kind of a, a mystical view in it. So there's not quite religious thinking and it's not mechanistic. I do take a kind of middle way where I think that we have intelligence in this and that matter itself has some element of consciousness. And then that is what allows this leap from geology and chemistry to life. And, and you know, life is very different to just biology and chemistry. And that, that's always been a stumbling block for the mechanistic view of abiogenesis with somehow these processes give us life, even though that it's never been replicated in an experiment. We've never found even a theoretical way that the mechanistic sciences can explain biology emerging, 
right? And we don't even see it happen again on this planet after that, that first event. So clearly something special happens in that moment. Now, so I actually think that, yeah, we're, we're dealing with a middle way. And that then on from that, again, I, I see additional elements to evolution beyond just um, random chance and the, the sort of events, the problems faced by life that shape us, that that's happening. But I also believe we have intelligence in DNA and that right. th therefore there is a shaping intelligence throughout this story. So um, I don't know how you say that. I see that as a, yeah, I definitely would see it as a middle way. Yeah. And I think it's interesting. Uh, you probably might know more of this. I've just recently started to research this in the past couple of months, but um, some interesting science that, that actually looks at experiments that have been done, I think over the uh, multiple times over the last 10 years, looking at actually encoding DNA. So like being able to, to put, to insert information into DNA um, and, and actually have it be held there for multiple generations, which is a fascinating topic, which I'm sure we're going to yeah. come to, but uh, we're starting to see some of what mm -hmm. you just touched on there. But, um, you know, so, okay, let's, let's sort of break this down a little bit further into some of what your research has found. And this may come from your first book into Africa, um, which you know, we're, we're talking about a, a sort of a new set of understandings or a new set of discoveries that, that created this idea that life um, or human life sort of originated in Africa and then sort of spread out from there. Am I correct in, in sort of saying that's what some of the information was saying, but then now there's even further information that perhaps even overturns that story? Yeah, there is. And, and I would just preface that a little bit as well by saying, a lot of this story is very selective and, and relative because if we think about it, when does the human story start? Well, we can say it starts with life beginning, you know, 4.5 billion years ago, right? So you could take it from there or you can say, well, it starts when there is a creature that looks basically like us, in which case then you can select, well, I think perhaps Homo erectus look quite like us, lived 2 million years ago. Do we start it there? You know, it's a, it's a bit relative. And so what we find is that people are the generally within academia, they say hominins, you know, early humans arise about six million years ago, about six million years ago, somewhere in Africa. And that's the current argument. But if you if you take that back a little bit, you'll find that the, the predecessors to those hominins are in, in Asia, in Eurasia, you know, initially in the, the Mediterranean region just before that. And then before that, you've got um, earlier kind of primate ancestors living in Southeast Asia. So, I mean, our story has always been moving around, right? So we, we can't say we are just coming from Africa. I mean, again, these are, I think, I always find it's very selective. It's like, well, when do you say it becomes important? You know, when is our story really getting going? Now, I, I will make an argument for that I don't think really that that early part six million years ago is all that interesting or important because we do have these kind of what I consider to be ape men quite frankly that are that do seem to be mostly living in Africa but we also have evidence that they're down in um I think there's some some footprints down in Cyprus I think it is or certainly on the Mediterranean islands and that we've got other evidence now from near to the entryways into Africa, in, again, in the sort of the Near East and in the Mediterranean, that suggests that there were these early hominins throughout that region as well, very early, perhaps same sort of time, six to seven million years ago. So we can't even say for sure that those early hominins emerged first in Africa. They may, they may well have traveled into Africa, even at that period, or have been spread between these regions of sort of the Mediterranean and Africa. So there's complexity that's coming in from new finds at the moment about even that fundamental story. But 
I don't think that for most people that they are particularly interested in these ape men. I think that what we like to find out more about is when do you know humans really get going, right? And to me, the first the first kind of uh, really intriguing characters in the story appear about two point six million years ago when we kind of have Homo habilis. Uh, and then Homo erectus around 2 million years ago, because they look essentially like us. And they're beginning to have a larger brain. You know, they're using the stone tools. Um, they show innovation. You know, they're moving out of their typical regions and ranging across the world. You have Homo erectus is now known in the Georgian mountains, uh, all the way down to Indonesia, moving around between islands. So th this is a character that sounds more familiar, right? That it can move across seas uh, and it's, migrating around the world and looks essentially like us. So again, it's selective of where, where people want to begin with the story. Right. So this is one of the interesting parts to this. I know, I know for listeners, you know, we're using, or Bruce is using a number of different technical terms to describe the sort of the different, uh, it's fair to say hominids, right? Like the, very, the, the, mm -hmm. the different types that we've seen. So, you know, when you see those classic images of evolution, you see these sort of different type looking, different facial features, different bone structures, mm -hmm. different, you know, those different, uh, you know, standing on two feet, walking around creatures, they, they represent different, um, I don't know if it's fair to use the word, I'm not an expert in this field, but lineages or the different, uh, total different types of, beings that existed on this earth at, at some particular time. And so with that said, that's what we're kind of referring to here. I have a question that relates to, um, I've heard that when we're talking about the modern humans, so like um, what we have today, what we are today, that we've kind of have been roughly the same for about 200,000 years or so. And there's a pretty big gap or leap that we can account for, I think is often called the missing link, to any other type of species that existed beyond that? Would, would you be in agreement with that? Well, we certainly have, you know, missing links in there, but I think now we have a better understanding of what was happening in that if we go back even to the early point of this, it now looks like there were many types of hominin living alongside each other in all periods until around about uh, well, to be honest, until around about the last 50,000 years when we know that Neanderthals and Denisovans are kind of fading out. But, but up until that point, I think that it looks like there's always been many. And, you know, the, the old view was that tree, right? You know, an ancestral tree. And then we essentially had kind of habilis and then erectus. And then it leads to, you know, these early kind of archaic homo sapiens and on to us. But we know really that that wasn't true. And that the latest kind of um, modeling is called kind of braided trees. And it's, mm -hmm. so if you imagine instead... A, a, like there was a, a if you've got a huge area of land that's covered in kind of rivers that interweave you know that you see sometimes with some of the major river networks in the world right you'll have the, the the main river but you have lots of these streams and you have lots of rivers that interweave they connect they part they meet again somewhere else and that's actually now the preferred model we're starting to understand that we have lots of ancestors of different types in all different periods because these different hominins are interbreeding and then a group will move away. They might be split off for a hundred thousand years, you know, 500,000 a million. Um, and then they will meet again somewhere and they'll be interbreeding. And so we are the product of so many different hominins 
that we just we just cannot say it's a simple story of you know there's this one it evolves there's another one so in a way the missing link idea has also changed because now what we recognize is well there was loads of different species some of them we have no fossils of um some of them we have no gen genetic evidence of but we can we can sort of infer that they did exist right because we're finding more and more of them so we're aware that actually there was lots and lots of different hominins who we just don't have a name for yet and that you know, any turn of a trowel you can find another species that was probably giving at least some portion of our genetics to us and that's that's this kind of new actually very sensible if you think about it, this very sensible kind of revision to the story mm -hmm. we know like the neanderthals for example is a very quick example it used to at one point be thought that neanderthals might have been directly ancestral to us right people thought neanderthals led to modern humans and then the wisdom changed and then it was that really they, they were unrelated they were just this other large-brained human who went extinct and had very little to do with well now we know that it was kind of more in the middle that yes they were separate to us living alongside our early ancestors but they also provide about three percent of our modern human genome in most people you know obviously that varies a bit there's some people with more some with less um east asians have the most neanderthal dna and we have you know, europeans have about three percent um, so they have about four percent and then there's other areas where there's very little in africa most people have very little if any neanderthal dna so there's a, it's a complex story right which is i think for most people is probably new to here because mm -hmm. they're used to that what they learn at school that simple tree yeah right and that that model has really gone yeah thinking about you know things in terms of of changing that model in my mind too because um you know, I'm now I'm now looking at it as um, I actually saw some research not too long ago that 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 did show that uh, there was likely you know modern humans and Neanderthals walking side by side, um, mm -hmm. and I think that perhaps is what overturned the uh, the Neanderthal theory of, of them being our ancestors, so to speak. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe maybe not. I'm kind of just filling in some blanks here as I'm hearing what you're saying and going, oh shit, like. Some of this stuff is starting to make a little bit more sense. Um, but I guess one of the questions would be, so what? when I'm hearing what you're saying, what, the way my brain is putting this together is it's almost like, and I don't know that this is the answer, and this is why I'm curious to ask this question, is I'm hearing that like different types of, of beings, of hominids essentially, are breeding with each other and perhaps then creating new versions. Mm -hmm. Um is that kind of how, is that the only explanation as to how we're seeing the different types of, of species that we're seeing? It's not the only, but it, this is definitely a, a major driving factor throughout that, you know, let's say the 6 million years of, of accepted of hominins, that that is definitely a major driver. I mean, we do have adaption to new regions you know and as we know that does have a role that you know as humans moved into say the tropics from you know elsewhere that they will adapt to that environment so you get some physical adaption and we know now from particularly from epigenetics you know the study of changes that inherited that are to do with the environment so for example um if there was a if there was a famine your biological system will adapt to that you know or, or try and help you survive a famine it turns out that, you know, your children will have that adaption. Your grandchildren will have that adaption, even if the famine is over. Right. So some of these things are inherited very directly from the environment people encountered. And if they persisted, they eventually became kind of permanent, you know, and changed us. Um, and also, of course, if a certain 
sized human you know if being tall was an advantage more tall people survived than short people so we know that encountering new environments definitely shaped people um epigenetics shaped people uh, there are called translocations there's, there's movements of genetic elements in the dna when they when they move around it can change elements of how we work they've seen particularly in, in plant experiments that you can essentially there's jumping elements that change how we function as well which is a bit like it's not quite mutations but again some of this is a bit random so there is things that are happening that are a bit more random um and then the interbreeding which is a major one uh, certainly i would say that modern humans are a hybrid you know absolutely a hybrid of many different hominins that we just do not know the names of we, we certainly were aware of neanderthals were aware of denisovans we know that Denisovans, in fact, were made up of different populations, as were Neanderthals, right? So we say Neanderthals, we say Denisovans, but there are such deep differences between some of these Denisovan groups in, for example, in, in Central Asia compared to Southeast Asia and Australasia, that they, they were distinct for 200,000 years or so, right? So they're essentially different hominins. They're kind of subspecies, right? So when we talk about it, we already know that there's at least about five or six different humans wandering around, you know, a couple hundred thousand years ago that would have given elements to us. But we can see within the human genome that there's elements that come from many others. We can kind of infer they existed. So we are definitely shaped by a sort of a coming together of loads of different humans that have been changed not only by their own interbreeding, but their encounters, their epigenetic change, all of that. Um, obviously, I do offer that there are moments in the human story where there's really profound changes and you know those where i suggest other things have happened and i obviously we'll come on to that in more depth but i just want to say that yeah i think that the interbreeding other than the more anomalous moments the interbreeding covers most of the shaping that we see is this kind of going away changing you know coming back together new characteristics being brought into the mainstream again and shaping who we are that that's yeah i think we're now understanding that that was a a huge driver so what I'm hearing here, and I'm going to play this sort of in the context of, of uh, you know, maybe the more mo the mainstream uh, sense of evolution. What I'm hearing is, is it's kind of like um, you have all these different species that are existing alongside each other, or maybe not all alongside each other, but at times different pieces, crossbreeding, interbreeding, creating other types. Maybe those types end up meeting other types, and it just kind of keeps expanding out from there. And if we study long enough, yeah. we'll probably find literally so many different types of beings because uh, there's almost, you know, almost endless amounts of, of interbreeding or crossbreeding that could take place. Um, mm -hmm. And with that, then if I was a mainstream sort of evolutionary theorist, I might then go back and say, okay, well, if I keep going back down, eventually I'm going to find less and less and less species and it's going to lead me back into some form of, of organism that, you know, eventually jumped into creating this, this, so almost going from that classic, like, oh, you got this single celled organism and it just keeps expanding out from there and from there and from there. And what I'm hearing when I play that story through is at some point there had to have been that major leap that you're referring to. So that major leap from some sort of animal like creature to a human. And I'll just say, or I shouldn't say a human, but a hominid. And I'll say that intuitively, that's always just not sat well with me. Um, mm. And if I was a scientist, I would probably use that intuition to do my research. <laughs> but 
this is where I'm curious because I, I know in some of your work, you talk about how there's evidence of almost like a genetic creation or a genetic manipulation mm-hmm. um, within humans for that, that was sort of just made for this planet. Um, yeah. Is, am I fair in saying that as we go down that evolutionary sort of story where we do have that major leap from some sort of animal to hominid, is that where this conversation is fair to have? Yeah, well, I think there's, yeah, there's definitely, to me, there's at least two points where humans kind of change in a way that makes them stand out compared to other animals. Yeah. Uh, those are the shifts that occur. Um, now, one reason why we can't be absolutely certain that that hasn't happened to any other species is that obviously humans are probably the best studied creature right on the planet because we're interested in ourselves so yeah. so i can't say that this has never happened to any other animals, but but there's definitely some interesting leaps that occur first the first one that stands out is around about two million years ago which is this the emergence of homo erectus who kind of is very similar to us i mean if look if homo erectus sat next to you on the bus you might well want to get up and sit in a different chair <laughs> you know it's different enough that you're going to be like what what is this guy about right but it's similar enough as well that you would recognize if you went to the zoo and you saw one in a cage, you'd be like, isn't that like some kind of, you know, human, do you know what I mean? So it's, it's close enough. Um, There is a kind of shift that occurs. And one of the the big things that's happened is the field of genetics has emerged. So we used to have always to go on fossils and, you know, inferring what happened from cave sites and, you know, (laughs) old meals and stuff. You know, obviously, in the in the last couple of decades, we've had this kind of genetic revolution, and so now we're able to take DNA and look at when changes occurred in the genome, so we can trace that back. So even without the 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 DNA itself from an ancient ancestor, because keep in mind the oldest uh, full genome sample that we have from any kind of hominin is is only about five hundred thousand years old, right? So we don't have samples a million years old. So, but what you can do is you can date and track some of the changes that occurred in that DNA going further back. So, so we now know that around about um, 2 million years ago, there, there are some changes that happen at the genetic level that really, I, I think, are kind of fingerprints of something strange happening in Homo erectus. With this, there's, there's a change that allows for more density of neurons in the brain. Uh, and there's a couple of other shifts that occur. Brain size begins to accelerate. Um, and we have... Uh, essentially the elements that I think that make us human have come together. You know, it has all the opposable thumbs and we we now see this um, kind of drive to travel even across water. I mean, by a million years ago, Homo erectus definitely is moving across water. Uh, There's signs of its stone tool technology move forward around that early point, two million years ago. I mean, to be honest, Homo erectus is fairly static though, between two million years ago and about, a million to 800,000 years ago, not much changes in that period. You know, we'd, we'd think it's a very boring character. You know, it's like <laughs> my stone tools work. Why change them? Yeah. You know, it's like, I've discovered them. They're brilliant. Uses them for the next million years, more or less. Right. Um, so although there is a leap, it's not such a leap that it now has the creativity and thinking that we have by any stretch. And it's funny that we ne- the next kind of leap that we see is that, around about 800,000 years ago, 
And it was it was long been known from the fossils that something strange had happened because we could see the skull size was increasing. You know, the cranial size for the brain was increasing very rapidly and far more rapidly than the body size change. So, you know, previously in between six million years ago up until sort of Homo erectus, it had always been in line with body size. And in fact, the, the brain hadn't got much bigger than a chimpanzee up until the point of Homo erectus. It was, it was very much, when I say that, I think of them as kind of ape men. I mean, their, their brains were much the same as a chimp brain up until then. But then at around 800,000 years ago, there's this really out of pace kind of acceleration. And we see that throughout the, the fossil evidence, but nobody knew what was going on because you know all, all you've got is these fossils and you can say, well, something strange occurred. We don't know what, we don't know why this brain is suddenly accelerating in size. We don't know what is going on here. But with genetics, we've been able to go in and say, well, actually, we can see that there are changes in genes that have occurred and new genes that have appeared. So we, we've started to gather those fingerprints, if you like, of why we're seeing these anomalous changes. And so for me, it's at two points, yeah, around about 2 million years ago and around about 800,000 years ago. Obviously, I, I give it more precise than I say 780,000 years ago because I have reasons to... Uh, and that's where you have these indications. You have what I would call um, leaps. And definitely, I guess, from an academic point of view, they might say, you know, there's some missing link in those moments. Um, certainly more strongly with the events 780,000 years ago, which is more anomalous. You know, it's more glaring that something is really going on there. Yeah. And I know that, like, you know, when, well, you know, I hate to use the term just because it's, it's, but when we when we do this from a mainstream perspective, right? Like when you have your mainstream archaeologists or your mainstream evolutionary scientists trying to understand what's going on, and let's say you brought to you know mm -hmm. them this 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 question of you know what happened seven hundred and eighty million or a thousand years ago, um, there's something that that happened out of pace, you know, out of out of what would be expect mm -hmm. uh, in terms of the 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 growth of a skull, the growth of a brain. Um, and you know, what might be the question? And of course, you know, they're going to say, well, you know, there was probably some event that happened on earth that, you know, just, uh, created mm -hmm. this really quick, uh, evolution because it just, it was so extreme and it needed to happen. It's like, yeah, that's a fair thing. But you might also then say, well, what, what about like something different, like an, an extraterrestrial question or something like that. And of course that would sort of be laughed off as no, that's not possible. That's just silly. That's too controversial. It's too far out there. However, um, you've come across some very interesting evidence that mm -hmm. makes an, an incredibly good case, at least well worthy of discussion that um, mm -hmm. extraterrestrials may play into the question. Can you sort of unpack that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you're quite right. You know, academics would not want to have that discussion. And if I saw an example, actually, there's a, um, there's a, well, there's a quite well-known um British kind of biologist, anthropologist, who, you know, she's featured on a lot of TV. The name's gone out of my head a moment, but she does a lot of, you know, the TV shows about our history and all this stuff. And I saw a comment on Twitter where she was kind of saying, you know, people that asked me about, you know, did aliens um, have a role in, you know, helping our evolution? It's like, of course they didn't. You know, there's no evidence of that. You know, straight away I thought, let's speculate on how much time she put into <laughs> looking to see whether there was any evidence of that before she answered, yeah. right? split seconds right so in other words there's no actual attempt to tackle yeah. that and say to you genuinely i looked for the evidence couldn't find it i can't agree with you on the argument that we'd respect right what what i find 
really irritating is I know that she spent no time on that and dismissed it out of hand as though it was impossible. And we know it's not impossible. Then you might, they might find it absurd. They might find it silly, but it's not impossible. So to dismiss anything that scientifically is possible in that way, I find kind of offensive to the, the very process of science. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is, again, anyone should sort of sit and think about that. Yeah. I mean, who are these people to arbitrate reality? You know, if they're not using science, then why does their opinion matter? Right. Quite frankly. Um, but <laughs> I'm sorry, going off on a little bit side there, but just it is a frustration. It's important. Because when you do look, you find evidence. And, and that's the, um, that's the crux. I mean, the way I came at this was a bit unusual because I wasn't starting out with, right, I'm going to look into did aliens make us? I mean, certainly I'd wondered it over the years. Like I think probably most people, you know, watching you know, at some point would have wondered that, you know, as one of the possibilities for our story. Um, but I hadn't put a lot of time into it. Now, what happened for me was it was about three, four years ago, a few years back now, I heard about this particularly odd, you know, story of, you know, a lady called Valerie Barrow who came into contact with an ancient sacred artifact over in Australia, something called a Chiringa. Now, I should also mention there's a, another person involved in this, an Aboriginal elder called Jerry Bostock, who's fortunately has passed on now, um, who is very much part of this story. And this artifact very briefly came to be in her possession because the, there was someone trying to get it back to the Aboriginal people. Now, just very quickly, I should say, a, a Chiringa, in terms of the Aboriginal law, it's an artifact that was left on this planet by beings from the Alcharinga time, which is like the creation time, what some of us would probably popularly know as the dream time or the dreaming, and that there were beings that walked the earth that helped shape the landscape, helped create a lot of the life on the planet, including humans. And they, they had, you know, they kind of ancestral spirits, creator spirits. I mean, we would probably also look at them as aliens. I mean, you know, obviously fit that bill. It really depends on culturally how you look at it with alien spirits, whatever you want to call them. But they say that some of these beings left artifacts, Chiringa. Now, it's also said that these Chiringa were housing the spirits or the minds of some of these beings, that they kind of turned themselves into these artifacts. We know that they were kind of small, compact objects that are kind of look like portable art. I mean, a very typical kind of replica of one would be a kind of soap bar kind of shaped stone object with symbols on often concentric circles and wavy lines stuff on it so there's, there's obviously there's kind of more modern replicas that aboriginal people have made these are also considered sacred but they're more you know they're more recent hundreds of years old so we know what they look like but they say that the very first ones not these copies but the very first ones were left here directly by these beings and housed consciousness of some of these Alcharinga beings so they've got a very, you know, telling backstory there. You know, we're essentially told, you know, if we take it from the Western point of view, that aliens left these objects here and that they contain the consciousness of some kind of alien beings that could communicate. And again, the law says that these objects transmit information. You know, they carry history and information and they're brought out in ceremonial times only by what we would think of as kind of shamans, you know, elders who have psychical abilities, the clever fellas. Uh, that they would come into contact with them very briefly. And during a ceremonial event, information would come from it, you know, and be shared with the 
with the, the tribal groups. And then they'd be kept in caves away from people and that nobody else should really come in contact with them. And they were, you know, highly sacred. And I think not wrong to say that in some ways considered a bit dangerous, you know, that you shouldn't go near them. And someone pointed out to me, actually, it's a very similar sounding to the, the tablets in the Ark of the Covenant, that if you think about it, that, you know, this story that only the high priests could go near these things mm -hmm. and that they were only brought out by them at special times and had to be kept hidden away in the Ark, right? Yeah. And that they were kind of dangerous. So it, it's a very funny overlapping narrative that they, the Aboriginal people have something that sounds awfully similar. Um, not all Aboriginal people. These are associated with tribes around Uluru and in the central north, um, so not necessarily all around the country, and that these objects, you know, somehow transmit this information. So this one of these is being taken back to the people in Uluru. There's this lady trying to get it back to them. You know, it came to her, in my understanding, through, I think it's an ancestor of hers, but someone had taken it from a cave. They'd seen it in a cave and had taken it whilst doing um, some of these trade routes. They used to use camels to go across the deserts. And so some of these, these desert traders had found this object luminous, like glowing in a cave and had taken it. And then so it had ended up, you know, in kind of European hands. And there was someone who was trying to get this thing back to the Aboriginal and, you know, the, the true kind of custodians of it. But she'd become rather unwell. And so was going to go into hospital. And she wanted to find someone to temporarily look after it until she came back or if she didn't would complete this kind of mission to get it back. Valerie Barrow at that time was living in a house called Algeringa and she'd just chosen that name because she liked the sound of it. <laughs> but she's, she is herself a, a kind of a holistic therapist, you know, regression therapist, what you call it, you know, very open-minded, she's kind of, you know, new age thinker. So putting a couple of things together, this lady thought, well, maybe this is, you know, a sign, you know, there's this lady, she's got a house called Algeringa, she's supposed to be, you know, kind of, holistic therapist and so approached her and said you know would she temporarily have this object in her house until until it could be recovered so she's like yeah i do that that's fine and obviously didn't expect anything of it she it was wrapped in paper bark so she didn't look directly on it and again that is keeping in with the the customary understanding you shouldn't look directly on them if you're not an initiated elder she respected that put it away in a box in her spare room and would have thought nothing more of it except that very soon after this she began hearing a voice that was, you know, directly speaking inside her mind, not, you know, not a voice like, you know, like I have a loudspeaker, but directly to the mind. What I, what I think of as kind of a voice to skull. And so, you know, this started explaining to her that this was an entity, that this was a, an Alteringa being, and that there was this information that needed to be given back to humanity about our past, about our, you know, our evolution and about events that happened in the past. And it really began to give her a, a wealth of information about a creation story that was quite unlike the one that we've been told. Now, again, the first thing people think is, well, you know, maybe sounds just totally bonkers, which you know, I can totally understand for some people if they're not familiar with high strangeness and you haven't had you know, odd things happen or are not familiar with cutting edge technologies. Because quite frankly, voice to skull is being worked on in labs, in, in many labs at the moment. Yeah. They, there's various techniques that are used to transmit voices into people's heads from lasers to microwaves. Um, so this is something we can replicate now with technologies, which makes you wonder then you think, well, if we can do it now, are we not going to think that advanced beings can do voice to skull technologies? 
Uh, the other thing we know is that with artificial intelligence, you know, we can load, well, certainly in the future, we'll be loading AIs into silicon networks. So you could have it conceivably a portable silicon network AI with voice to skull technologies. So you start to see that actually some of these things that we would think, well, it's it's all woo-woo. It's like, well, actually, we're going to be building things like this. Yeah, just um, to interject for one second there, I actually sure. have a, I have one of um, uh, Flanagan, Patrick Flanagan's, uh, his, his, I forget the name of it, the neuro something or other, but you basically just put these two pieces of, of like metal, essentially, uh, little diodes, essentially, like on your head, mm -hmm. and it's just frequencies that pass through, and you can play music into the device, and you place mm -hmm. the metal on your skin, the frequency runs through and you can hear the music in your head, in your ears, or, you mm -hmm. know, how, how mm -hmm. you would hear, but it's all just frequency. And, and, yeah. you know, that's a really interesting visceral experience to describe, you know, very much what you're talking about. It's just, we're just taking frequencies and we're, we're passing it through and the brain's decoding and making sense mm -hmm. of it, of what it would sound to our ears. So absolutely, just to kind of add a, absolutely mm -hmm. to what you're saying, we can definitely, uh, play with that sort of stuff so it's it's not out of the ordinary to think that no. you know that could happen and it makes a lot of sense because and again if we um there's a class of objects in theoretical science that are called bracewell probes um there's a guy called ronald bracewell that theorized that advanced extraterrestrial civilizations would probably engineer artificial intelligent probes that you could send out to explore you know the cosmos and that some of these could land on worlds you know run experiments, monitor them, and others that they called sentinel probes would sit, you know, perhaps on a, an asteroid circling through a solar system, just monitoring, monitoring for any developments that change, you know, or sit on a planetary surface yeah. awaiting a civilization to arise so that when it did, at some point, it could make contact on the behalf of the civilization that sent it. So, yeah. which makes, again, makes a lot of good sense, doesn't it? You know, so if you want to explore, a, you know, a whole galaxy, rather than flying around in your own ships, doing this, to have sentinel probes essentially sitting in any interesting solar system and then, you know, sending back, either sending back information or capable of running the mission itself. Because if you have a self-aware artificial intelligence, for example, it it's essentially is like a being. It's kind of representative of your civilization and can act on your behalf, you know, with your cultural understandings and all the rest of whatever you want it to do, it will do that. Now, this object, this Turinga, behaves exactly in the way that Ronald Bracewell, you know, kind of theorized these probes that, you know, it's kind of waiting. And then at this juncture in time, something, you know, activates it in the sense that it is making a contact with someone to get this information out to the world. I mean, we can assume that the the traditional custodians, right, that had this, the Aboriginal people, almost certainly knew all this information and they would have already had this information about how we were creating us because they, they've had this object for a long time, but their knowledge is kind of considered sacred for those who initiated to it. So this object seems to have taken it upon itself to go outside of the culture and directly make contact with the world beyond, you know. And so that's kind of, interesting because otherwise we wouldn't really know about any of this so it's and the things that it tells her it says it can influence people to take it wherever it wants to go mm. so i don't think it's by any sense any of this has happened accidentally from the moment it was taken from that cave that you know all of this i, I imagine it's manipulated people 
to move it around to take it places right and so at this point it so it's given all this information but it adds some other layers which are kind of fascinating it says that you're also going to hear this story about our creation you're going to hear it again but from people in your life you're going to get bits from all different people just to kind of almost like a to reaffirm that this is something real and it's not just in your head or anything like um and she does go on to have you know a lot of encounters with people that have kind of past life memories that also relate to the story. And I know that I'm clarified what the story is, but just sort of prefacing that this is both very strange, but yet also a lot of it meshes with what we might expect from advanced, you know, really advanced intelligences, the kind of things that they can do, the kind of you know, like magical seeming technologies. You know, I think was it, there's that famous line, isn't there, that any sufficiently advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic. Mm. Uh, and, and that's the kind of level. And also there's another, a very recent statement given by um, Professor Avi Loeb, the guy that you know is dealing with Umu Amua yeah. as a possible alien technician. He points out, you know, that if you were to drop an iPhone into the into the sort of the Neolithic, and you asked an early hominin, well, what's that? It's going to say it's a rock, yeah, yeah, it's just a, it's a shiny looking rock. Because what does he know? He only knows rocks, so it's a rock. Yeah, and so if you drop a technology from a sufficiently advanced civilization into our world here we're not going to know what it is, right? We could easily just think it's a nothing, right? That it's a rock or something. So these objects, these chiringas probably don't look, you know, we've seen these copies of them where they look kind of just like a, you know, an oddly shaped stone with patterns. On. So we could easily see one of these and think, well, it's just a cultural artifact. It's nothing, you know, it's an Aboriginal stone or something and not know what it is. And that's thing we've got to be aware that, you know, we have to be really careful. Then you start to deal with, technologies far beyond us particularly if they're meant to be hidden from us right what would you want to make it look like well why not make it look like something that doesn't look like much more than a rock i mean it's a lot of this stuff is actually kind of what we should expect and that's the funny thing about this story is at first it seems maybe too bizarre for people but then you, you start to look at the expectations that our cutting edge scientists have and it actually meshes <laughs> perfectly with them yeah yeah that's uh that's an interesting way to look at an interesting piece to the puzzle so what i'm what i'm hearing is you kind of have um this this i don't want to call it a device a device if you will um that is discovered and she you know the the lady uh is bestowed to, to sort of bring it back to um sort of complete the mission of bringing it back to where it belongs if you will she starts hearing a voice and the voice is telling her that there's a new creation or there's this creation story that's a long forgotten wisdom and mm. um you know this device potentially you know is the sort of the piece to the puzzle that'll help her um maybe receive this message and then i'm assuming maybe pass it on to others, so to speak. Um, where does the story go and how does this start to, uh, to get us into the idea that uh, humans, or we'll say humans, but we'll say even many different types of uh, hominin species were created by extraterrestrials? Well, I'll give you a little bit more about what happened with it before I go on to my part in this, which is soon after this, a friend of Valerie's was driving nearby and, and had this Aboriginal healer called Jerry Bostock, who was a he was a very respected, you know, internationally known healer, also a playwright and an activist. I mean, people look him up, you know, he was quite well, very well known, very well respected man. He's in the car with Valerie's friend, and she mentions, Oh, a friend of mine lives near here in a house called Al Chiringa. And he he stops and says, Take me there. I need to go there. 
right? So she's like, okay, so he drive, drives along. And Valerie, who's, she admits she's never had any interaction with Aboriginal people, right? So suddenly, you know, this Aboriginal, she's just got this object turned up, you know, a few, a few days before, and now there's an Aboriginal elder has turned up at her house, right? So you can imagine she's a bit like, what's going on here, you know? Um, and so she's sitting there and they're talking and, you know, and then, it, well, but she just feels that he knows that this object's in the house. So she just says to him, look, you know, yeah, I've got this, this thing in the house, but it's just in another room and I don't touch it. And he says it's men's business, which, which is true because they are reserved for the male elders, these clever fellas. Nobody else would touch it, particularly women are not supposed to touch them, right? So he's quite right in saying, you know, it's men's business. And so she's like, well, I've never, you know, I've never looked on it. It's kept in another room. And so they have a conversation. She says, do you want me to bring it out to you? And he looks almost scared and says, no, 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 no. Right. Because they understand that he understands that these things are profound and that when you come into contact with them, you know, for Aboriginal people, they'd be like, well, very wary because you know that this is a power object, something really powerful. So he was quite wary. But what he, he tells her is, well, what I think we need to do is I want you to come to this place um, with me called um what's gosford you may some people may be familiar with the gosford glyphs there's a site called um well, you know, gosford at carry on uh, in, in new south wales and there are a number of strange looking egyptian kind of glyphs carved into some stone walls there but there's also an aboriginal sacred site there my understanding part of it is a women's site part of it is a men's site and then there's these walls which have these engravings and he says well, i want to, i want you to go there and we're gonna you know have a conversation about this there and so shortly you know shortly after the meeting they've arranged you know to go there again and so the three of them Valerie's friend you know Jerry and herself they head down to the Gosford Glyphs and whilst there and they take the they take the object you know this artifact with them and whilst there this voice you know starts saying you know about that this site was essentially engraved by alien technology there was lasers were used for some of the glyphs had been directly carved using lasers. That there's additional ones I think have been added over time, like there's the Egyptian ones, but there was originally some glyphs there that were laser carved. And then they start to have a very strange experience. They start to feel like, you know, something odd is happening, um, you know, a sensation of change in your consciousness. And then they realize that they're no longer looking at the same forest around them, that things have started to shift. And then they look down across towards what's called Broken Bay, which is, um, an area kind of inland waters near to them and they can see a saucer craft crashed into the water and with another one floating above it and at, at that point they also look at themselves and they realize they're no longer normal human beings mm -hmm. that they've got long fingers extended heads and stuff and that they realize that, that and then information starts kind of flooding in that they remember being members of the crew and so jerry remembered being the pilot of the crashed ship that he, he remembered dying in the water, that, that he got pinned inside and drowned over a period of time, not as quick as, as human beings we drowned, but he, he drowned over a period of time. And that there'd been a destruction of a mothership in space, and that these were survivors from a destroyed craft. And that, you know, the scene before them was this kind of the after event of what had actually happened. And so then they started to get this recall from that life you know, people could argue whether this was just being projected by the artifact, you know, just showing them what happened, or it was a past life. I mean, you know, in some respects, that doesn't matter. But I, I mean, I say keep an open mind. I don't know for sure it's a past life or if it's this artifact, you know, dealing with alien technology. 
who knows how it works but they they are given this kind of time slip experience where they see now this place as it was thousands and thousands of years ago you know the jungle is different everything's different um but essentially you know in the same place and then afterwards when they come back out of it you know they kind of realize their their relationships as well i believe that um, jerry realized that in that life he was very connected to valerie's friend you know that they'd had a relationship in that life um valerie realized she had been the the partner of the commander of the main ship and had been a communications officer a head of communications essentially um and that, so that all this information came back so then from this a story came out of that there had been a mission to earth there had been a large crystalline craft with 50,000 beings on board that had come here to peacefully sort of colonize but it's a handover so this planet was already in the hands of another group of beings that there is agreement that has been made through careful kind of you know ambassadorial exopolitics that there's going to be a handover of this planet back to this kind of a collective which is kind of a benevolent or at least um you know, neutral and benevolent collective of beings that are requesting the return of earth which has been seized previously and that this is going to go back into kind of alliance collective hands and this other group who are more hostile more service to self will hand over in this agreement but instead there's a kind of a betrayal that's occurred this peaceful ship you know has been destroyed in space a few survivors have managed to make it to the ground and they're, they're now you know in trouble because they're not adapted to the planet and this is again where some of the what i call the sensible science comes in because they can't really live here because what they were doing was modifying themselves using genetic engineering technologies to live on earth so this is something that advanced species do from my understanding and from what they understand is that if you're going to colonize a planet you're almost certainly not going to be biologically suited to it in the same way that if we go to mars we can't just breathe the Martian atmosphere. We'd have trouble with the gravity. We'd have trouble with everything, right? But if you have advanced technologies, you can change yourself. And indeed, at the cutting edge, if you look now, they are talking about this at NASA, is modifying astronauts using genetic engineering technology to modify astronauts and to give them special drugs and, you know, chemicals so that they can adapt better to gravity on, you know, on the space station or gravity on the moon and that we're already looking at doing this. Okay, so they are using that to modify themselves. But because the main ship, most of the technology has been destroyed and they were still in the process of doing this, they are not properly adapted to Earth. Some of them are are being burned horribly by the sun, cannot tolerate the radiation. Others are are being poisoned by bacteria in the water. Uh, Others just can't breathe. Most of them can't breathe properly because they are not at the point where they were ready to settle the surface fully. They've been kind of coming and going a bit, but they were not ready at this point. So this is, again, it's a funny element of this because you often hear about, you know, aliens going to Earth. How do they breathe? You know, how do they eat stuff? But those practical things are a reality. There's an issue there. And so they are dying off one by one. You know, they're dying off. So they realize they cannot stay here, you know, long term. They're not going to survive. What, what can they do? Well, a plan B is to to modify the existing hominins on the planet and put in a degree of themselves into them to kind of raise them up out of where they're at, which is, as they describe it, as a basically as a kind of almost a slave-like being that's being used by the controllers of this planet and that has you know low intelligence, is really not going anywhere. And this again, I would say we were dealing with something like a Homo erectus that was frozen in time and didn't do much more than create some basic stone tools. So we're dealing with some fairly, you know, 
not very exciting characters that are living. So they they take some of these and they modify the they modify the fetus, right? So they take you know eggs, take sperm, they modify fetus, start to create a new type of human which splices in some elements of themselves. But most of what I, what most of what's happening from my understanding is is really genetic engineering at the level of of changing the functions of DNA. So not not this idea where you know we say hybrid species where you know aliens you know fall in love with a human they have a baby. I mean that that's kind of absurd. You know I think most people understand why that's absurd. That you know anyone who has any familiarity with biology knows that you know it's like could an elephant have you know a child with a whale or something? You know we know they can't right because these species are so far apart in terms of evolution. So we wouldn't expect an alien to be able to have a child with a human. And I know those for some people find that if they believe in the idea that aliens just come here and have children, because I mean, obviously that's out there and, you know, that people do believe that I would struggle to believe that. Okay. Because the species are so far apart, but so what they're doing here is using uh, highly advanced versions of what we have now, like the CRISPR, gene drive technology, all this stuff, right, that we have now, that they're using these kind of mechanisms to go in, modify at the level of the genome and create a new kind of human. But they're also adding elements that are, you know, outside of the, rather than just, just changing, they are splicing in some new information in there, right? So we're sort of told that they have it. The first, the first examples don't necessarily all go well, that, you know, they just talk about some failures and there are some babies that do not, live very long and again so this is stuff that makes sense you know if we were just going to come up with a story like a woo-woo wishful thinking happy happy story you say they did this and it was all perfect no no there, there was failures there was horrific failures in the beginning um but over time they have some that do survive they start to you know perfect this because they're using just what's left the technology they said these are kind of like almost like the medical kits from landing ships rather than the lab you had in the mothership so this is using what they have to do the best they can. And I say, this is another, without going off down another alley here, I want to say actually, this also explains partly why human beings are full of so many genetic errors that, that if we think about it, you know, if we'd been perfected by an advanced alien race that is absolutely knows DNA, you know, knows the code, knows all that, and has the top-notch technologies, why is it we seem to have so many genetic flaws, okay? And I think this is wise because we're dealing with them working out of what's left in the bag. You know, what have we got here? We, we're just going to use it to make a lab and do the best we can, right? Uh, and so, again, a lot of this meshes with what we observe in reality. It's not by any means just one of those stories where you think, well, I wish you were thinking, and then the science doesn't add up. In this case, the science does seem to add up with the, the way it's described. These are all the things we can imagine in that situation, very practical concerns. Mm. Interesting. So sort of unpacking this in my mind. So everything you sort of just described, um, mm -hmm. that creation story was what came as a result of either the projection coming from uh, the device itself or whether it was uh, maybe some other type of state of being or something that, that they were in or remembrance of a past life. So this, this whole uh, story or uh, almost like a visual movie or a download of information into consciousness mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. as a result of, of them being in close contact at the location they were at, plus with mm -hmm. the, uh, the device in hand. Um, so then that leads to the question, 
okay, so we kind of have the story now. Um, how might we be able to back this up other than sort of, you've, you've mentioned a lot of interesting sort of correlations um, where it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, we can see because of that, because of that, right? And these are interesting pieces of information that add to that. Do we have more hard evidence that then lends to the story as well? Yeah, absolutely. And that one thing that really interested me about this, when I first, you know, I read um, Valerie's account of this, because when she published a short book about it in 2002, called El Chiringa, um, when the first ancestors were created. Now, I, I didn't read it till 2013. You know, this, this came about through other things that have gone in my life, a connection to another, another lot of research, really, that linked me to Australia. And then, you know, how these things go, kind of simplicities and the connection to her. Um, but basically, yeah, so when I read the book in 2013, you know, I realized there was there was so much kind of detail in there that I thought, well, if if this is true, you know, and I felt it was true, I suspected it was true, I had, you know, various reasons to, but but if it is true, there's enough detail here that we might be able to go away and actually look for supporting evidence. And I thought that's kind of a first, because, you know, you hear stories of Sumerians with, you know, the Anunnaki, and maybe they, Chris, and we hear stories about, you know, reptilians, and but what we, what we never seem to have is any way to use that information to get objective scientific proofs, right, that back up the story. We're left with this kind of thing of believe it or not, you know, oh, they said the aliens came, believe it or not. And fine, you know, some people choose to, but, you know, if you are objective and critical and skeptical on those stories, it's very hard to believe them, isn't it? You know, because you're left with a feeling that maybe, yeah, and I, I think that's kind of unsatisfying when it comes to our origins. With this, with this case, I was like, well, you know, we've got this enormous ship for start. We're told that there's this great big crystalline craft, a living craft, essentially with an AI throughout the whole. So it's a, a silica crystal craft, a mobile silica network, if you think of it like that. Which is, again, it's funny because if you look at the cutting edge, again, of what's expected of aliens. Now, some of our greatest thinkers are saying we'll probably be um, post-biological AI, maybe planet-sized AI floating around out there. So it's kind of funny. So we're now talking about, again, crossovers between what mainstream science is saying, that aliens probably will have giant floating silica networks. And so this is what we're described as, is this living craft. It's being hit with a weapon that we're told is kind of an entrainment beam that causes it to the vibration or frequencies to be modified. So you can almost like a vibrating and melting at the same time. So superheating um, and almost breaking apart in the way that, you know, in a glass resonates with the frequency and it shatters so you've got this kind of uh, this kind of weaponry which is in training it and, and causing it to over to heat up and also to melt and to shatter and so, so they describe it as that it kind of melts in space part of it melts and rains to earth right so and this, we is, get this is part of the story specific detail there. right the, the, this stuff i just want to make the distinction clear like this is part of the story that was told to them is that is that this melting happened? This this thing happened. So I just wanted mm-hmm. to make that clear so that people yeah. listening knew like um, where you yes. were linking the the evidence to. Yeah, absolutely. So that because that was quite specific. I thought, well, if that happened and it rained down, is it possible some debris from this enormous craft could have persisted in the geological record? You know that we could find it somewhere out there. And because we know that these beings have come down in Australia, I'm thinking, well. You know, if you're fleeing an attack, probably you're going to come straight down, more or less, right? If you, the ship's been blown up. So I thought a good starting place to look is Australia, yeah? 
So I'm looking through the, you know, look through the, oh, the other thing as well is this, in the information, it said that this is somewhat towards 900,000 years ago. It's going towards AIDS. So I've got a kind of a timeline, but I know that you've got to be a bit wary with time, particularly with what I could consider psychical kind of or mystical events. I know sometimes people say time is difficult to, to get right. And also do aliens have exactly the same measures of our years? I don't know. So I thought I'd, I'd expand it a bit and say, look, let's call it from 900,000 up to about 700,000, you know, sort of million to about 700. And just to look in that period and see, is there something that kind of meshes? And the funny thing was actually turned out that there is a century long mystery in science over a material called Australite tectite. And that material is 75% silica and it's in the form of, of melted debris that has rained down across the planet from Antarctica all the way up to China, right? So this is a massive debris field. And out to the sides, some elements have been found in Madagascar and out in the oceans beyond Papua. So, I mean, this is an enormous debris field beyond anything else we have on the planet. No, any impact, normal impact sites, there is nothing on this scale, right? This has rained down over thousands and thousands of square miles. Uh, and it, so it turns out this material has had so much analysis done. You know, let's say there's a persistent mystery because at first people thought, well, maybe it was um, glass made by some lost civilization. Maybe it was created by volcanoes, uh, maybe lightning striking. You know, people come with all these different theories because they found all these little kind of glass buttons. They only look a button shaped object. Others are teardrop shapes or dumbbell shapes. And you know, we better understand those because when there's an impact, from a meteorite, it throws out molten material. And as it moves through the air, some of those form teardrop shapes and dumbbell shapes, right? So we do kind of understand usually how tectites form, right? These kind of mineral glasses. But the, the unusual thing in this case is that you have this, these buttons. And now this caused this long, long, long argument in science about how they form, because it's very obvious, you know, certainly now today, it wasn't maybe initially, but today it's very obvious they formed by aerodynamic forces. You can see that they look like the nose cone almost of something, right? So they, they've passed through the atmosphere and the back part is half sphere. So essentially what you've had is a sphere of glass-like material has passed through the atmosphere. It's heated at the front, material melts and runs back and you end up with this cone, kind of nose cone shape with the other half of the ball at the back, right? And so they, they stand out, it's very strange. We don't find them anywhere else, you know, in history, except for that one moment. And they're dated to 780,000 years ago. And so there's hundreds of papers on this, you know, there's hundreds of papers. You find that they're still talking about it as a mystery because for quite a while there was an argument between one group of scientists who said maybe it was material blown off the moon by an impact and that this debris field traveled from the moon, you know, rained down across the earth. Others said maybe it's this giant meteor impact that has thrown this material and somehow the material has gone out into space and come back down. And that argument was going on for decades until lunar material was tested and it found it, it couldn't mesh with it, right? So by default, the impact people won the argument just because as far as they're concerned, there was no other right theory, okay? Mm -hmm. But it's never explained it. It's never explained it away because the thing is when asteroids impact our planet they don't throw debris into space right that's why we don't see this again we never see look think about how many impacts have happened unbelievable numbers of impacts we never find these tech type buttons again because when something impacts it, the material is thrown out but it's passing through atmosphere and so it's very quickly losing heat and it's very rapidly slowing down 
So it just it just does not work out that this material is flown out into space. And in fact, they know that for it to, to, to form these buttons, it has to be entering at a very shallow angle that is meshes with an orbital path that is decaying. So they said that the source body, again, NASA, these are NASA papers, and we can you know, obviously bring those up, but there's the NASA papers show that this had to be an object in orbit that's fragmented and that these smaller drops are come off are following an orbital path and then coming in at that shallow angle, which allows heating to this secondary melting because anything that comes directly down like a meteorite burns up, could get superheated, burns up. These are coming slow enough that just the front edge melts and that they, but they're still coming in so fast that they're not explainable by I was, you know, ballistic action in the atmosphere. So essentially, I think it's, um, let me see the speed. I think it's about 11 kilometers a second that they reckon it would have to mesh up. So There's been experiments in labs. I think it's NASA Ames. They run experiments to replicate these, you know, like wind tunnels and all the rest. Of it. And they, they come to the conclusion it has to be going about 11 kilometers a second, which is which only meshes with objects coming from space. So that the fastest a bowl, you know, an object thrown out of an impact goes is about six kilometers a second. So there's a massive difference in speed that you just, you don't have these from, from asteroid impacts. And then you've got this problem that, um, once again, you know, how's it coming in at the same angles as, as something that's orbiting, okay? So there's these enormous problems in the asteroid impact theory that were never reconciled with reality, okay? It just became the default because let's be honest, they're not gonna go there with any other explanation. Right. Yeah? They can only be those two. It's either from the moon or it's an asteroid impact. And so neither explains all. That's the reason why they had a debate ranging for, you know, raging for years is because neither camp could explain all the evidence. And instead, just one lost and then to the other one by default, but never explained the evidence. And so I was astonished, as you can imagine, you know, you're looking for a highly silica melted debris that's come in on an orbital path over Australia. And then it turns out that's where they are. These buttons <laughs> were all found in the southern part of Australia. So, you know, it's... It's, it's astonishing. It was like a hand in glove. You know, these moments you just think, because I didn't, I'll be honest, although I felt this was a real story, I didn't expect to find that evidence because I'm right. thinking it's so long ago, right? Yeah. So what the evidence is is essentially saying is that, you know, around 780,000 years ago, uh, there was an event where um, some form of debris, highly silica, um, which matches mm -hmm. the story of what the ships were made of, um, comes down mm -hmm. and and lands itself right around the area where you know it is said that that a lot of the story linked to this particular uh, we'll call it artifact mm -hmm. again that's found yeah. Yeah. Um, it all sort of originates in that area around Australia so uh, what you're saying is it's it's fair to it's fair to to continue to look at the idea because the evidence continues to say that yeah if these ships were in fact made of silica and there they were in fact, destroyed in some form of warlike event, um, mm -hmm. you know, that could be there, that, that, you know, that, that could be the result of that. Where I kind of have a curious question is, um, mm -hmm. is there anything else that sort of fills in some of a little bit of that next bit, which is, okay, now that we kind of have evidence that a ship may have been destroyed in this area and there may have mm -hmm. been beings in that area, um, how do we, or do we have any hard evidence to support the genetic modification that might have gone on at the time we do yeah in fact there's, there's two parts of the story that have evidence i just very quickly want to add in one before we get to the genetic this is okay which yep. is that we're also told that 
five years after this event that there is an arrival of a, of a, a small fleet of additional ships and that these are another group from this alliance. So this isn't just one type of being. That yeah. on this craft there was multiple types of beings, including some that are crystalline robots. Sort of thing. They have a robotic shell, but they're a crystalline being. And so there's one of these that survives the destruction event and plays actually quite a key role in the narrative because it has abilities the others don't, which helps with this whole process of you know creating all sorts of so there's all sorts of beings but another group arrive who you know they're aware of what's happened they turn up and they enforce this agreement they warn the other group uh, who are described as a kind of a reptilian humanoids that are based underground they warn them to leave the planet they say look get off the planet and these are kind of a, a cat-like humanoids kind of lion people right mm-hmm. And I know it's really sounds very odd, but again, these crop up obviously in ancient art and stuff. Yeah. That these mind people, they they apparently have a history of of war with these reptilians, and they're more militaristic. And so they they're like, get off the planet! If you don't leave, we're going to begin bombardment from space of your bases. And at this point, apparently, most of these beings leave. They leave through describes a wormhole that connects to Orion. That they leave and they go back to Orion, but that some of them remain. And so the lion people begin a bombardment, but their bombardment involves asteroids. They pull in out, they say, we can pull in asteroids big enough to crack a planet open if we want to, right? So they say, forget about your nuclear missiles, like pea shooters. (laughs) Um, So they pull in these asteroids and they begin bombardment of Earth's surface, in particular regions where there's these underground bases. Well, that's an extraordinary sounding event, right? So I'm thinking, as you can imagine, you're thinking, well, I've never heard of a multi-directional asteroid bombardment during the, the human, you know, historical kind of period. Um, obviously, we've all heard of the dinosaur impact event and stuff like that. I've never heard of one multi-directional event like that. So I think, is that real? You know, is that real? Turns out in 2016, bear in mind again that, you know, this information goes back to the 1990s and a book, you know, is already out in print 2002 so again you know can't be saying that this is someone who's read it right and put it in there but it turns out 2016 a german geological team has sort of discovered that there was a multi-directional asteroid bombardment of our planet and that these objects here in canada um, in central america so in asia one down in tasmania and another one seems to have hit in antarctica in fact, the one that had fragmented five pieces hit in Antarctica, uh, and one of them leaving uh, what they think would have been a hole in the ice 200 miles by 200 miles to give you some idea of the kind of mm-hmm. damage we're talking about, the kind of size objects. Right? They think that object, those five chunks that went in at Antarctica together, were about the same size as the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs. So, I mean, we're not talking about little meteorites here. Some of these were enormous pieces. So the reason why we don't see a an event on the scale of the extinction of the dinosaurs is because this is during an ice age and that the ice absorbs a lot of the, the energy of the impacts, but there would have been melting of about 1% of the ice sheets. And so those sea level rises would be really significant. And it also would have stopped the tsunamis because instead of tsunamis traveling through free ocean, they're stopped by a lot of ice, right? So again, the, the energy is absorbed. But the impacts on land, so they would have thrown up a lot of dust, there'd been firestorms, earthquakes. So this is still really a catastrophe, like global catastrophe, but just not quite on the scale as the dinosaur one. And again, you know, I was thinking, this is incredible because we, you know, I'd never heard anything about this, you know, a cataclysm on that scale that we, 
we don't hear about in our history. Uh, even today, I don't think I've never seen any specials come out about this, you know, any documentary. So it's kind of funny, but we've got now you've got this second event, which again is anomalous because they, they found that these different sites have chemical differences which show that this was not one object breaking up, you know. So you'd a lot of people would leap to that and think, well, maybe we have one asteroid breaks up, turns into a swarm. No, the chemical components are different at the different sites. These are different objects all hitting at the same time. What the hell is going on here, right? Yeah. And yet, you know, we have a paper that sort of says it like that without any attempt to explain, well, how on earth would something like this happen? Why would we be getting clobbered from all sides by different asteroids all of a sudden, yeah? Mm-hmm. So that was the second thing that made me think, well, hang on a minute. This, this is too astonishing to ignore. You know, you've now got you know, this object in orbit made of silica breaking up and has rained down, like they said, melted. Uh, they've said that, you know, five years later, asteroids are impacting all sites. They found, you know, we now have the impact sites of all those. And of course, yeah, the third one, the big one, oh, and I should add here that 780,000 years ago is also the last time we had a full magnetic reversal. So, you know, right on the same thing, another giant anomaly, the last ever, you know, full magnetic reversal, right on the same time, okay? And then we have the genetic side, which of course is what's most important and for all of us, the most interesting. And up until about, well, four or five years ago, it was thought that Homo sapiens had arisen uh, splitting off from the ancestors of Neanderthals and others around about four, five hundred thousand years ago. Okay, that that for a long time had been the established view, and that you know from early Homo sapiens, modern humans kind of evolved two hundred thousand years ago ish. But we've already kind of split off from the Neanderthals around about four hundred, five hundred, five hundred thousand years ago, and that that's kind of to them was when the big event you know happened in terms of us parting ways with the truly archaic hominins you know let's say homo erectus and others okay that we've parted ways about then it's only in those the last few years that has shifted because they found dna at a site called um was it humus de los huesos uh, which is a site basically the pit of bones it's in spain and they and amongst the the fossils there, they managed to extract DNA, sorry, Cima de los Huesos is the site. And they extracted DNA that was, I think it's um, about 530, sorry, yeah, 530,000 years old, I believe it is. And so this was the oldest ever extracted DNA. Okay. And what they found is that the Cima hominins were ancestral Neanderthals, but they were already well diverged away from us. So there'd already been a split between the ancestors of what would become modern humans and Neanderthals much earlier. And then, and then with the recovery of genetic information from the Denisovans in the Denisova cave, this further established that actually, no, this split had occurred closer to 800,000 years ago. And they give a bit of a range now, some say sort of 550 to 800. I mean, there are some sites who are trying to say maybe a bit earlier, 900. But if you look at it, the clustering of evidence is for around about 800,000 years ago that there's a divergence underway, which will lead to Neanderthals, Denisovans, and us. And on that same moment of divergence, if you go into the genome in more depth, what you find is there's a slew of anomalies. One in particular is the fusion of chromosome two, which I mean, I think most people, if you have an interest in this topic, will have probably heard of that because uh, that's been brought up by researchers like Lloyd Pye in the past, who wrote you know, quite a lot on the topic, but is also referred to by creationists 
was saying that you know humans are not related to primates that you know we have these fundamental differences like the fusion of chromosome two uh, and for people that aren't familiar with that basically all other primates have 48 chromosomes we have 46 chromosomes it's it's believed that there was an event which led to two what we call ancestral primate chromosomes fusing creationists don't necessarily accept that but the evidence suggests that the, there was a fusion an end-to-end -end fusion of two of these chromosomes and that that led to radical changes and you'll find there's lots of papers out there that suggest that you know the, the question is asked was chromosome two the event you know that led to humans to modern humans you know was that the event because we can see that it happens with a fusion on a active gene a gene which is to do with the reproductive system the brain the immune system there's changes of information at the fusion site there seems to be additional information and subtracted information when compared to other primates there's something strange has gone on at the fusion site um, there's also uh, this other elements there again which suggest it was quite profound you know it was quite profound change but there's other elements to this if you think about it you've got if you've got a population of humans all over the world that have 48 chromosomes if there was a mutation Right, and it led to this, you know, let's say one individual having 46 chromosomes. What you expect to happen is that to fade away again, okay? Because with breeding, again, it would just vanish. And because obviously, even today, we sometimes get chromosomal errors which occur, and you know, either the person cannot reproduce, or that when they have you know children, someone else, that becomes recessive, and that trait you know vanishes, and because the majority of people have 46 chromosomes, right? So it stays, it stays stable at that. So why is it we don't see that with 48 chromosomes? And to explain the reason why we see the vanishing of all hominins with 48 chromosomes, so that it requires a few different elements. First of all, you have to have a number of individuals developing this at the same time, right? Not only developing at the same time, but in the same place, because they essentially have to be a breeding population, right? And the other element is that he says a small, this best fits with a small isolated group. That, you know that have this persisting change and that it has to offer some kind of astonishing advantage which means it will persist no matter what you know what i mean if they go into breed it persists because the advantage evolutionary is so strong and that you outcompete the other people so now you're talking about something very odd <laughs> a group in a small area strange change upgrades them start sounding like people in a lab you know like you're creating them in a lab a contained area somewhere away from everyone where you know they're giving astonishing change all those elements that fit exactly with what you'd expect from a lab experiment with a small test group right because otherwise how are you going to have this mutation occurring in several people at once it doesn't it doesn't add up it, this is not sounding very random it's not sounding random at all and, and it conveys such intense benefits again that's not very random so they know that there's something very strange going here. What they wanted was a date, because of course, you know, it's like, when did this happen? And it turned out that because Neanderthals and Denisovans also have 46 chromosomes, right? And they have it in the same fusion event seems to occur for them. So you, you can trace it back and say, well, okay, we know that the fusion has to occur before the split. Now, how much before? And so for quite a long time, you know, it's been speculated could have been was it just after we split from chimps or you know when did this happen um, but there's a, a british biologist that um he looked at this at the chemical level you know again this goes outside my knowledge in terms of i, I can't do 
you know, huge biology at the chemical level. Um, but he he did the analysis and found that if you look at where the fusion site is, you can kind of you can work it out on the basis that the telomeres at the ends of of chromosomes they mutate at a faster rate than the middle, which makes a lot of sense. If you think about it, you've got a fused area, you know, solid fused area in the middle of a chromosome versus the ends. The ends is where most change occurs. Okay. So once they fused, that change basically stops. And so he looked to see when it was it appeared that that slowing in changes occurs. And what he came to conclusion was it was somewhere towards 750,000 years ago. And so now that we know that Denisovan Neanderthals are splitting around about 800,000 years ago, we know that this is, is happening on that moment, that it is indeed right on the split and is the cause, part of the cause of the split and, the, and of the large brain and all these are coming out of this same event in this same moment. And here we are on that time again, because right in that range of, you know, obviously when they give these dates, there's a, a range. So you're right on that bit again, close to 780,000 years ago, they're saying, well, look, turns out that's when this fusion events occurred. And on top of that, within the genome, there's a, a number of brain genes, particularly that are odd. There's one that's, um, I can't remember the name, but if you, if later on, you check for, there's an article came out, I think last year, they put a, a gene into a monkey, a brain gene into a monkey, and it's developed a larger brain. Now it's obviously a strange experiment and all this, but this is, I think it's RGAP, RGAP 2B, it might be, and that this brain gene is one of the ones I identified as being anomalous in my work, which is kind of funny because now it's kind of manifesting in, in our world because they're actually running the experiment again, if you like, you know, that we're now doing this to a monkey. But it turns out that this gene is one that I believe it's, um, a, it's one of two possibilities. There's two different genes that are particularly interesting. One that appears fully formed out of non-coding DNA, which is one of the two that are majorly interesting. And then there's another one, I, I think I'll get to is the one that is a fragment of a longer gene, if I remember rightly, that it, and it's described in the literature as being almost as though someone took a snip out of a complete gene and put it in, reinserted it. Well, that's what we do. We do that now. We do that with CRISPR, right? Yeah. And it, it appears to be a fragment of a longer gene. And by putting it in, it caused this, this brain growth. And I think the other one was to do with the neocortex, which again, you know, is central to some of our higher thinking. And you start finding these genes that do these incredible things are anomalous, you know, appearing out of the non-coding DNA fully formed and stuff like what is going on there? You know, it's just saying a gene that is essential to the modern human brain just appears magically out of the non-coding DNA and stuff like it's it's almost absurd. So when you start looking and you see the way they're describing it as well, that even, you know, makes me wonder do the scientists kind of sense it because, you know, to say, you know, it looks like it's cut out and Xeroxed and put back in. I'm thinking when I read that, you know, what was he thinking when he wrote that? Is he thinking this is super weird, but I can't say it looks like genetic engineering. So let's just say it looks like someone Xeroxed it and put yeah. it back in, you know, but it makes you think, but yeah, so there's, there are, yeah, indeed, there's a whole slew of anomalies right at that site and i mean i'll add some more but i'll let you you know jump in because you know i I'd go on <laughs> yeah i mean it's 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 fascinating like it's a lot to take in right so there's a lot of details there um yeah. the one the one question i had off the top of my head maybe you could provide some clarity to or or maybe there's not an answer um True. is you know from a just like an investigative journalist perspective i go okay there's there's all these things that that sort of do make sense yeah. and and do make fit but um yeah in questioning 
the the pattern that sometimes we can do where it's like, okay, we make things fit when we want. Um, some of the pieces of evidence, for example, you said that it's possible some of the date ranges are between like 500 and 8,000 or maybe even up to a million mm-hmm. for some of the times. So, so there's not necessarily mm-hmm. like an agreement on when certain splits or certain things happened. If, if the numbers of say 500 or 600,000 were correct when we're talking about some of these major changes in, uh, I guess in humans or in some of the beings that exist around that time, what would that do uh, to this story? Um, would it would it kind of change that that all succinct moment in and around seven eighty? Um, that would be important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if if it were to somehow to come out that you know um, conclusively that we'd let's say we'd misdated the Australite and that it was nine hundred thousand years old, and then somehow we conclusively um, found that, um, you know, modern humans, uh, you know, our ancestors had split off 600,000 years ago. Yeah. I mean, it would definitely, it definitely make you think, well, look, some part of this, you know, can't be accurate in terms of at least this story or that, you know, this information is not entirely honest. So we then have to look and say, well, okay, what would be left that's anomalous, Mm -hmm. you know, and just look at it from the perspective of, okay, well, what are we left with that's anomalous? And I'd say that we're still then left with two sets of anomalies, but we just wouldn't have that, let's say, the amazing story that unites them. Yeah. Instead, we'd be left with, okay, how do we best explain a silica object that's in orbit around our planet, um, breaking up, you know, raining down? How do we best explain that? In that case, I would say that, and again, I may, I'm writing a paper on this. So I'd say that I'm looking to make the argument as a standalone argument that that in itself is an alien techno signature, mm-hmm. right? That even, even if we disregard meteorites, bracewell probes, um, you know, genetic engineering, all of that on its own, because of course this is how science kind of works. You've got to make these, these standalone arguments and say, okay, well, what is the, is there a problem here to fix? And with, with the Australite, there is, because we, like I say, we've had a hundred year long mystery, um, which has had all the things thrown at it. As you can imagine, asteroids, comets, you know, that's all being thrown at it. So the reason why it's persisting as a mystery is because there's an unknown element. My argument there is that this fits best with an extraterrestrial artifact, you know, a highly silly, because I say what I would call a, a kind of a mobile um, artificial intelligence silica network. So I would make that argument a standalone, and that's what I'm kind of doing at the moment. Yeah. Um, and also with the genetics, I would say that we would still be left with a mystery as to these genetic changes. And so even if that story, let's say that story just fell apart, and it turned out that, as you say, we dated them differently, I would still say that we have an argument in both cases to say, was there alien interventions on this planet? at point one and at point two, mm-hmm. rather than this lovely neat fit where it seems that they all fit together, you know, approximately 780,000 years ago. Um, instead, we'd say, well, this looks a bit more messy, you know, so are they alien or not? And I think you're still left with the best explanation is intelligence, quite honestly, because again, with the, let's say with the genetics, there is, I could just tackle this slightly separately because I wrote an article about this, that a few years back, they've detected in the human genome something called um, human accelerated regions, right? And the first one, HAR1, was particularly interesting because 
you have a strip of, of DNA letters, 118 letters long. So that's quite short in, in terms of DNA segments. Um, now this is in a, what's called the, the highly conserved non-coding DNA, right? So this, these are areas that stay very stable and that don't code for genes. You know, we used to call them junk DNA, but we know actually a lot of them do things, right? A lot of this code does stuff. Um, and so what they found was that, that one of these HRs seemed to have an unusual changes when you compare it with other life forms. So they, they contrasted the same segment in chickens and chimpanzees. Now, between the chicken and the chimpanzee, you've got 300 million years of separate evolution. And when they looked to see how many changes they were, they found I think it's only two changes had occurred. It's either two or three, but you know, there's, so you got a very tiny amount of change in 300 million years. So this is incredibly stable. So we know that the code is doing something very important where if a mutation occurs, the organism almost always dies or is infertile, right? So now you take the chimpanzee and the human being who is supposed to be separate for about six, seven million years. The expectation is that those two strips of code will be identical, okay? Because you know, if you're gonna change roughly every 100 million years or so, you know, you're expecting them to be identical. What they found instead was there was 18 letters had changed. So you can imagine they were kind of shocked because what, what what's going on here? 18 letters and there's only three that's changed between a chicken and a chimp. Um, and then they start to find more and more of these segments. Right. And the interesting thing about this is if you look at the theoretical idea to look for a, gen a genetic signal from aliens, you know, and again, this has been proposed in the past that we should look in the, in the genomes of animals to see if there might be a kind of genomic wow signal. And that, you know, if they'd ever come here in the past, that one way they could pass on a message would be to modify DNA in a way that would be persistent and stay, which means using changes in highly conserved non-coding DNA, funnily enough, which is where we're told exactly where we should look for such messages. Yeah. And that, now we find that there's this whole load of hundred, several hundred of these human accelerated regions, which unexpected levels of evolution in them. Now, okay. Weird enough in itself, but if we're talking about random mutations, we'd expect those to be doing all kinds of things throughout the body, right? You know, random, random. Instead, the ones that we understand so far, almost all of them are to do with fetal brain development, fetal brain development. Mm. And, and there we were told that, you know, I mean, obviously story, the idea of fetuses being modified for the human brain. To, and yeah. here we are finding that in those very areas where we're told aliens could, you know, leave messages or changes that would show us they'd been here is where we're finding these changes that make human beings, a lot of them anyway. That, and, and again, these HARs, similarly to the chromosome two, have been put forward in a number of, I think if people have looked for this, you can look for papers on it, look for articles on it saying, are these the changes that made us human? Because again, they offer such profound changes to do with the brain and nearly all of them to do with the brain that we know of. Again, does that sound random to you? It doesn't sound random to me. When, when someone says, well, they're nearly all to do with fetal brain development. <laughs> well, that's not random. Yeah. It's not random at all. And in fact, nearly all the differences between us and the other primates are to do with the brain, right? Yeah. Is that random? That does not sound random. It's not, you know, a bit, you know, there's a bit of code for the kidney that's different. But, you know, the, the same amount of codes for your, you know, in organs have changed as for your brain. No, yeah. we find that this is very not random at all. So I think we would be left instead saying there's two events that are so anomalous 
that either one of them merits someone hypothesizing extraterrestrial involvement. And, yeah. and that's how I would answer that. I'd say that they're so implicitly strange, these events, that they stand alone, even without, you know, this story that connects them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's fascinating really when you think about it, because there are, there are, um, there are so many pieces that when you start putting them together, you have to think that the probability of there being something here tends to, Mm -hmm. it, 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 exponentially gets greater the moment you add one other factor, right? Um, that one other factor makes a massive impact on the exponential yeah. probability of there being something there, which is fascinating. Um, and and I, th- yeah. I think it, it, it's something that, you know, just going back to the gut or going back to, you know, what we call an intuitive feeling, intuitive intelligence, it's, it's kind of like, it, it feels like there's something here, you know? Um, it feels mm-hmm. like this, this makes a lot more sense. And, and I mean, I'm sure there's like so much we can go into. We're definitely going to have to have you back to, to unpack this stuff more, but I, I'm, I'm sort of left with one interesting question I'd like to ask you sure. um, in, in all your work doing this and what you found and what, um, you know, this research might mean to you. Like why, why is this exciting to you? What does this mean to you? What do you think it could do for the world? Yeah, I, I really see this as, you know, offering us um, a new and better and more exciting story of humanity, one that, to my mind, inspires us to really look at ourselves as a, as a, a cosmical species, you know, a, a, that we know that there's life out there, looking at reevaluating our universe. It's not this cold, empty place where, you know, ooh, maybe a zillion light years away, there's some bacteria on a moon, and that's our only companions in the darkness, you know, that, that it changes that. And also the abiogenesis story, this whole mechanistic view that it's all you know, the clanking cogs of trance and chemical processes that I think that that has a role in our on our consciousness and on our psychology of who we are and the way we're behaving. You know, and I think that if we were to have all grown up with and grown up as a species to have grown up with the conviction that we are part of a, a cosmic community and that that there was a part of our story that is special, you know, and sometimes we feel like, you know, we're outside nature or we're somewhat different or special but there, there really is a basis to that feeling that you know that it's because something you know more intelligent than us reached down once at least once and did something to raise us up to be better you know or to to be able to do more than we ever would have been able to imagine and that we are part of that story and that there is that chance of perhaps of reconnecting with cosmic relatives that may be watching, maybe, or just out there waiting for us to come. You know, I think that that's a, a much more inspiring and uplifting view of who we are, our potential, where we might go, you know, than the current one, which is, I, I find is kind of a bit cold, you know, yeah. a bit cold, a bit empty, and definitely hasn't really inspired us to put a lot of effort into space. I mean, let's be honest, we spend trezillions on weapons and not, <laughs> not a huge amount of space, but would we change that if we'd always believed that we had a cosmic family? I think we probably would have. And they've been that's that feeling to, we want to reconnect with our cosmic roots. I think that we'd have had much different priorities. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting thought. One, um, you know, it's almost like the, the idea of, of believing in the story that, well, I mean, technically there's kind of two overwhelming stories, but even if we just look at the scientific side for a moment, you know, the, the vast majority of it kind of says we're these 
these passive observers in this experience we call life. And, and, you know, we're like you said, you said the word random so many times random, you know, essentially means that it's like, we almost have absolutely no control over anything mm-hmm. that's happening. And mm-hmm. we're just kind of here as a happenstance. And, and in a lot of ways, that story uh, it can make you feel very powerless in, in, in the reality around you. Nature is almost against you. It can come and wipe you away in an instant. And everything starts to feel this, like you, you were touching on this, this underlying conviction. Um, you know, a, a lot of these, what we call perennial questions, you know, who we are, why are we are here? What's our nature? What's our relationship with the cosmos? What's our relationship with each other? Truly? What is the nature of reality? You know, these things form worldviews. And these mm-hmm. worldviews then form how we build our society. And so I, I'm fascinated personally in my work with the idea of if we have a greater understanding of these perennial questions, um, how then would we create life differently? And um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I just think it's like it's it's like you said, it's like imagine a kid growing up and knowing that there's a cosmic family, how different generations down the road how different our world would look. And so one of the last, mm-hmm. I guess, questions, I know I already said this would be the last one, but I got one more um, that I wanted to ask is in my research of a lot of this stuff, there's been a lot of discussion around this, this idea of war, this idea of, of, you know, is it within our nature to be a uh, survival of the fittest and to compete with one another? Or is it, is that maybe not our nature and we just don't fully understand that yet? And there's, there's been some archaeological evidence that suggests that some um, of the modern humans, so the one that, that we're talking about here that we've been talking about in this discussion, you know, 5,000, 10,000, maybe even 15,000 years down into the past, there wasn't much evidence of war. And Mm -hmm. they're using that as a suggestion to say that maybe it's not our nature. Maybe we learned war from something else. Now, what I want to do is kind of set that there and and also acknowledge that there's the past you just presented, this 780,000 year story that says, wait a minute, our past actually is kind of war related between different species. Putting those pieces on the table, uh, what do you have to say about each of them in relation to our nature. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I find it interesting that in two different ways, first of all, that, you know, we, we have in this narrative that's come out of this, you know, this event, this contact, or whatever you want to call it, that there certainly has seems to have been cosmical war, you know, that there's definitely been in this understanding, you know, some conflicts in space, in prehistory, you know, even planets being taken over. And so, it does fill in a bit of backstory that, you know, if, if we are the product of beings, you know, modified by beings or that they have had a role in shepherding us along, you know, might we not have got some of this from them, you know, whether at a really a fundamental genetic level in some strange way or more directly, you know, if, if there was their early influences on us, um, and, and those are both things I've sort of pondered on. But it's interesting that we find that, as you say, there's periods where it seems like there really isn't war going on. And in fact, I think the earliest cities that's been found down in South America, there's a coastal city, um, which is so far the oldest known city in South America. So they didn't find any evidence of warfare there. And that, that was kind of really, you know, really shocking for archaeologists because you expect, you know, city, there's always kind of conflicts with another city. Uh, and always, instead, there was a long, long period right, with no sign of warfare. Now, there might have been, you know, those small events where somebody killed somebody, you know, obviously like murders or something. Um, 
but there wasn't any evidence of organized warfare. And that kind of shows something, doesn't it? It shows that it's not necessarily fundamental to who we are, that we have these group kind of tribal conflicts that where we all go to war and start killing each other, that that not, isn't necessarily built into us. So I, I think that, yeah, although there's possibility we have some influence in our, maybe in our violent characteristics or, you know, in the motions that allow us to be violent, but I, I do rather think that maybe war is not who we are and that that could be something that's been influenced by by other intelligences uh, or also by the fact that we know that there is a small percentage of humans who are naturally psychopathic you know at a genetic level they have psychopathies narcissism uh you know all these issues and I, I think that as they've become dominant that their violence you know their enjoyment of other people's suffering has been shaping the culture and that that's why we have it. I don't think at the fundamental level that the average person really feels that, you know, war is right or that it's something that we need to do. I mean, certainly soldiers get, you know, trained to fight in wars, but I think it's very different. You know, I don't think many people intrinsically are drawn to those conflicts. I think there's very few people on this planet who, who see war as being, you know, great. You know, it's like, settle it with a war, you know. I, I don't think the majority of humans are like that. I think we're being dragged into it by people, um, a very small number of people that do see that as how you sort out problems. Um, I also have the, yeah, I do have the feeling that maybe we've been manipulated a bit by uh, what I'd say is unseen intelligences that again, maybe see us as a kind of a proxy in an older war that, you know, I don't necessarily think all these intelligences have just gone away right and just mm -hmm. left us and that you know that this story is now all about us I, I personally i'm of the opinion that behind the scenes there are still influences with this planet uh, and that war may well be one of the most glaring influences of those kind of intelligences at least in some cases um like are we going to what we call conspiratorial topics i suppose where you know why do these psychopaths and people you know run these wars what is it they get out of them you know are they being influenced somehow and, and I, I suspect so of course it's very hard to prove that but that's my feeling both intuitively and based around what we've discussed you know it's my feeling that this is an ongoing influence yeah well said and and you know it's interesting because if we were to dive into that topic of uh of of government relationship with uh extraterrestrial civilization i mean there's there's so much evidence there that we could discuss but i mean it would just go on for days so <laughs> it's yeah, one of those yeah. things um this has been a fascinating conversation uh it's definitely sort of inspired some of what my core interests are uh in this so i, I want to say thanks for all the work that you're doing and for sitting down yeah. and uh doing this interview today thank you very much and i really appreciate it and i you know good questions um really enjoyed that and um particularly the one asking about, you know, how would it stand up with the dates change? Because I think it is important to look at do things stand alone because, you know, obviously, even if the story is true, our dating methods might get something wrong, you know, so we could mm -hmm. end up with a situation where the evidence didn't seem to stack up and it could still be true. So then we would have to look and say, well, are these events so strange that they infer something else? Yeah. In which case, do they link? You know, so even without our dating, we'd have to say, do they come to us? So I really appreciate you asking that because... Yeah, it does. It, it makes you think, isn't it? You know, would they stand up alone? Yeah. 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 And it's fun. It's kind of the um, I find in scientific culture today, 
you know, and we, I'm sure you see this a lot. We've mentioned it even through this is that there's almost this lack of like just fun, playful curiousness and sticking mm-hmm. to what the scientific method is. Instead, it's sort of become this career driven, ego driven, corporate driven, like I don't want it to overturn my worldview. And that that's a sticky and icky way to way to play within this, uh, this whole space. Uh, absolutely and uh, to be honest i hate that i'm kind of feeling i have to write an academic paper <laughs> just to have this conversation with the wider public but the way things are set up scientists and journalists don't really want to deal with a story like you know a narrative yeah. story particularly one that's strange whereas i would rather it was just put out to the public and they decide for themselves but we have this intermediaries right where well it won't get to the public because unless an academic has written it in a paper a science journalist won't talk about it. And then, you know, the only people that will cover it is, a you know, let's say a tabloid who won't reach people or it won't be read as a serious thing. And so it's actually, yeah, I think it's a great shame that we have something that might be an inspiring story, even if people don't believe it, even if it was proved wrong, right? It's an inspiring story to think about. And the fact that it's so modulated by these layers in our society that it just cannot reach them unless you follow their rules. Right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I, I'll be honest, I'm quite frustrated. I have to sit and write yeah. essentially a much more boring version. Right. Um, just so that anyone can even hear about it, which is yeah. you know, it's kind of annoying. Yeah. My, my feeling is, is that that consciousness that sort of is seen within everything, every, you know, exist the, the field, if we want to call it that, that we sort of discussed at the beginning. Uh, my feeling is that that consciousness it tends towards evolution of its own expansiveness and intelligence. And I think in even that fringe idea, the fact that humans are now moving away from that mainstream media, believing mm-hmm. everything that's saying and now being more interested in the alternative sources, I think lends very well to, uh, you know, being able to tell these stories um, in, a, in a much more, uh, mainstream accepted way without having to go through the mainstream media, which are just yeah. kind of outdated now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I don't think that they should be the singular arbitrators of truth because we also know that science is, uh, well, science is great, but scientists are not always great, right? Yeah. And that we know there's a lot of scamming going on in papers and, you know, all sorts of rubbish has been published. You know, it's come out that a lot of time the checking process is dodgy and, you know, so that it isn't like all of these papers out there are perfect and that the people in the fringe that don't do this are, are somehow worse, you know, but there's, there's problems on both sides. You know, there's problems with the independent people who get things wrong or, you know, write fraudulent stuff, but there's also academics that do the same, that there is no perfect system. Yeah. Um, and I think people have the right to consider whatever information is out. there. I don't think we need arbitrators of truth. You know, it's yeah. well said. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The CE Show. If you have a moment, consider passing this show on to a friend or family member who you think would relate to this type of conversation. Bringing community together in these conversations is key, and you'll find these days people are a lot more receptive to these emerging ideas and perceptions than they may have been in the past. Lastly, visit ctv.one and consider becoming a member of our community, where you get access to a ton of video content including original shows, discussions, and courses to help you make sense of the world and transform how you show up in life. Visit cetv.one to learn more.